Chapter 12, Part 2 of 2, The Guns of Bull Run, A Story of the Civil War's Eve. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Al Rocha. The Guns of Bull Run, A Story of the Civil War's Eve by Joseph A. Altscheller. Chapter 12, The Fight for the Fort, Part 2. It seems to me, said St. Clair to Harry, that while we have taken the fort, we have merely made an exchange. Instead of being besiegers, we have turned ourselves into the besieged. And while I'm expecting everything to turn out for the best, said Langdon, I don't know that we've made anything at all by the exchange. We're in the fort, but the mechanics and the mill hands are on the slope in a good position to pepper us. Or to wait for reinforcements, said Harry. I hadn't thought about that, said St. Clair. They may send up into the mountains and bring four or five times our numbers. Patterson's army must be somewhere near. But we'll hope that they won't, said Langdon. The northern troops ceased their fire presently, but the officers, examining the woods with their glasses, said they were still there. Then came the grim task of burying the dead, which was done inside the earthworks. Nearly two score of the Invincibles had fallen to rise no more, and about a hundred were wounded. It was no small loss even for a veteran force, and Colonel Talbot and Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire looked grave. Many of the recruits had turned white, and they had strange, sinking sensations. There was little laughter or display of triumph inside the earthworks, nor was there any increase of cheer when the recruits saw the senior officers draw aside and engage in anxious talk. I'm thinking that idea of yours, Harry, about Yankee reinforcements must have occurred to Colonel Talbot also, said Langdon. It seems that we have nothing else to fear. The Yankees that we drove out are not strong enough to come back and drive us out, so they must be looking for a heavy force from Patterson's army. The conference of the officers was quickly over, and then the men were put to work, building higher the walls of earth and deepening the ditches. Many picks and spades had been captured in the fort, and others used bayonets. All, besides the guard, toiled two or three hours without interruption. It was now noon, and food was served. An abundance of water in barrels had been found in the fort, and the men drank it eagerly as the sun was warm and the work with spade and shovel made them very thirsty. The three boys, despite their rank, had been taking turns with the men, and they leaned wearily against the earthwork. The clatter of tools had ceased. The men ate and drank in silence. No sound came from the northern troops in the wood. A heavy, ominous silence brooded over the little valley, which had seen so much battle and passion. Harry felt relaxed, and for the moment, nerveless. His eyes wandered to the new earth, beneath which the dead lay, and he shivered. The wounded were laying patiently on their blankets and those of their comrades, and they did not complain. The surgeons had done their best for them, and the more skillful among the soldiers had helped. The silence was very heavy upon Harry's nerves. Overhead great birds hoovered on black wings, and when he saw them he shuddered. St. Clair saw them too. No pleasant sight, he said. I feel stronger since I've had food and water, Harry, but 
I'm thinking that we're going to be besieged in this fort, and we're not overburdened with supplies. I wonder what the colonel will do. He'll try to hold it, said Langdon. He was sent here for that purpose, and we all know what the colonel is. He will certainly stay, said Harry. After a good rest, they resumed their work with pick, shovel, and bayonet, throwing the earthworks higher and ever higher. It was clear to the three lads that Colonel Talbot expected a heavy attack. Perhaps we have underrated our mill hands and mechanics, said St. Clair, in his precise, dandish way. They may not ride as well or shoot as well as we do, but they seem to be in no hurry about going back to their factories. Harry glanced at him. St. Clair was always extremely particular about his dress. It was a matter to which he gave time and thought freely. Now, despite all his digging, he was again trim, immaculate, and showed no signs of perspiration. He would have died rather than betray nervousness or excitement. I've no doubt that we've underrated them, said Harry, just as the people up north have underrated us. Colonel Talbot told me long ago that this was going to be a terribly big war, and now I know he was right. A long time passed without any demonstration on the part of the enemy. The sun reached the zenith and blazed redly upon the men in the fort. Harry looked longingly at the dark green woods. He remembered cool brooks, swelling into deep pools here and there, in just such woods as these, in which he used to bathe when he was a little boy. An intense wish to swim again in the cool waters seized him. He believed it was so intense because those beautiful woods there on the slope, where the running water must be, were filled with the northern riflemen. Three scouts, sent out by Colonel Talbot, returned with reports that justified his suspicions. A heavy force, evidently from Patterson's army, operating in the hills and mountains, was marching down the valley to join those who had been driven from the fort. The junction would be formed within an hour. Harry was present when the report was made, and he understood its significance. He rejoiced that the walls of earth had been thrown so much higher, and that the trenches had been dug so much deeper. In the middle of the afternoon, when the cool shade was beginning to fall on the eastern forest, they noticed a movement in the woods. They saw the swaying of bushes, and the officers, who had glasses, caught glimpses of the men moving in the undergrowth. Then came a mighty crash, and the shells from a battery of great guns sang in the air and burst about them. It was well for the Invincibles that they had dug their trenches deep, as two of the shells burst inside the fort. Harry was with Colonel Talbot, now acting as an aide, and he heard the leader's quiet comment. The reinforcements have brought more big guns. They will deliver a heavy cannonade, and then, under cover of the smoke, they will charge. Lieutenant Kenton, tell our gunners that it is my positive orders that they are not to fire a single shot until I give the word. The Yankees can see us, but we cannot see them, and we'll save our ammunition for their charge. We'll keep down in the trench, Lieutenant Kenton. The Invincibles hugged their shelter gladly enough while the fire from the great guns continued. A second battery opened from a point further down the slope, and the fort was swept by a cross-fire of ball and shell. Yet the loss of life was small. The trenches were so deep and so well constructed that only chance pieces of shell struck human targets. Harry remained with Colonel Talbot, 
ready to carry any order that he might give. The colonel peered over the earthwork at intervals and searched the woods closely with a powerful pair of glasses. His face was very grave, but Harry presently saw him smile a little. He wondered, but he had learned enough of discipline now not to ask questions of his commanding officer. At length he heard the colonel mutter, "'It is Carrington. It surely must be Carrington.' A third battery now opened at a point almost midway between the other two, and the smile of the colonel came again, but now it lingered longer. "'It is bound to be Carrington,' he said. "'It cannot possibly be any other. That way of opening with a battery on one flank, then on the other, and then with a third midway between, was always his, and the accuracy of his aim is, too. Heavens, what an artillery officer! I doubt whether there is such another in either army, or in the world, and he's better, too, than ever." He caught Harry looking at him in wonder, and he smiled once more. "'A friend of mine commands the northern artillery,' he said. I have not seen him, of course, but he is making all the signs and using all the passwords. We are exactly the same age, and we were chums at West Point. We were together in the Indian Wars, and together in all the battles from Veracruz to the city of Mexico. It's John Carrington, and he's from New York. He's perfectly wonderful with the guns. Lord, lad, look how he lives up to his reputation. Not a shot misses. He must have been training those gunners for months thunder, but that was magnificent. A huge shell struck squarely in the center of the earthwork, burst with a terrible crash, and sent steel splinters and fragments flying in every direction. A rain of dirt followed the rain of steel, and when the colonel wiped the last moat from his eye, he said triumphantly and joyously, "'It's Carrington. Not a shadow of a doubt can be left. Only such gunner as those he trains can plump shells squarely among us at that range. Oh, I tell you, Harry, he's a marvel. He's the wonderful mathematical and engineering eye. The eyes of Colonel Leonidas Talbot beamed with admiration of his old comrade, mingled with a strong affection. Nevertheless, he did not relax his vigilance and caution for an instant. He made the circuit of the fort and saw that everything was ready. The southern riflemen lined every earthwork, and the guns had been wheeled into the best positions with the gunners ready. Then he returned to his old place. "'The charge will come soon, Lieutenant Kenton,' he said to Harry. "'Their cannonade serves a double purpose. It keeps us busy dodging ball and shell, and it creates a bank of smoke through which their infantry can advance almost to the fort, and yet remain hidden. See how the smoke covers the whole side of the mountain? Oh, Carrington is doing splendidly. I have never known him to do better.' Harry wished that Carrington would not do quite so well. He was tired of crouching in a ditch. He was growing somewhat used to the hideous howling of the shells, but it was still unsafe anywhere except in the trenches. It seemed to him, too, that the cannon fire was increasing in volume. The slopes in the valley gave back a continuous crash of rolling thunder. Heavier and heavier grew the bank of smoke over and against the forest. It was impossible to see what was going on there, but Harry had no doubt that the northern regiments were massing themselves for the attack. The youth remained with Colonel Talbot, being held by the latter to carry orders when needed to other points in the fort. St. Clair and Langdon were kept near for a similar use, and they were crouching in the same trench. 
If everything happens for the best, it's time it was happening, said Langdon, in an impatient whisper. These shells and cannonballs flying over me make my head ache and scare me to death besides. If the Yankees don't hurry up and charge, they'll find me dead, killed by the collapse of worn-out nerves. I intend to be ready when they come, said St. Clair. I've made every preparation that I can call to mind. Which means that your coat must be setting just right and that your collar isn't ruffled, rejoined Langdon. Yes, Arthur, you are ready now. You are certainly the neatest and best-dressed man in the regiment. If the Yankees take us, they can't say that they captured a slovenly prisoner. Then, said St. Clair, smiling, let them come on. Their cannon fire is sinking, exclaimed Colonel Talbot. In a minute it will cease, and then will come the charge. Tis Carrington's way, and a good way. Hark, listen to it, the signal. Ready, men, ready. Here they come. The great cannonade ceased so abruptly that for a few moments the stillness was more awful than the thunder of the guns had been. The recruits could hear the great pulses in their temples throbbing. Then the silence was pierced by the shrill notes of a brazen bugle, steadily rising higher and always calling insistently to the men to come. Then they heard the heavy thud of many men advancing with swiftness and regularity. The southern troops were at the earthworks in double rows, and the gunners were at the guns, all eager, all watching intently for what might come out of the smoke. But the rising breeze suddenly caught the great banks of mist and vapors and whirled the whole aside. Then Harry saw. He saw a long line of men, their front bristling with the blue steel of bayonets, and behind them other lines, and yet other lines. It seemed to Harry that the points of the bayonets were almost in his face, and then, at the shouted command, the whole earthwork burst into a blaze. The cannon and hundreds of rifles sent their deadly volleys onto the blue masses at short range. The fort had turned into a volcano, pouring forth a rain of fire and deadly missiles. The front line of the northern force was shot away, but the next line took its place and rushed at the fort with those behind pressing dose after them. The defenders loaded and fired as fast as they could, and the high walls of earth helped them. The loose dirt gave way as the northern men attempted to climb them, and dirt and men fell together back to the bottom. The northern gunners in the rear of the attack could not fire for fear of hitting their own troops, but the southern cannon at the embrasures had a clear target. Shot and shell crashed into the northern ranks, and the deadly hail of bullets beat upon them without ceasing. But still they came. The mechanics and mill hands are as good as anybody, it appears, shouted St. Clair in Harry's ear, and Harry nodded. But the defenses of the fort were too strong. The charge, driven home with reckless courage, beat in vain upon those high earthen walls, behind which the defenders, standing upon narrow platforms, sent showers of bullets into the ranks so close that few could miss. The assailants broke at last, and once more the shrill notes of the brazen bugle pierced the air. But instead of saying, Come, it said, Fall back, fall back, and the great clouds of smoke that had protected the northern advance now covered the northern retreat. The firing had been so rapid and so heavy that the whole field in front of the fort was covered with smoke through which they caught only the gleam of bayonets and glimpses of battle-flags. 
but they knew that the northern troops were retiring, carrying with them their wounded, but leaving the dead behind. Harry, excited and eager, was about to leap upon the crest of the earthwork, but Colonel Talbot sharply ordered him down. "'You'd be killed inside of a minute,' he cried. "'Carrington is out there with the guns. As soon as their troops are far enough back, he'll open up on us with the cannon, and he'll rake this fort like a hurricane beating upon a forest. Only the earthworks will protect us from certain destruction.' He sent the order, fierce and sharp along the line, for everyone to keep under cover, and there was ample proof soon that he knew his man. The northern infantry had retired and the smoke in front was beginning to lift when the figure of a tall man in blue appeared on a hillock at the edge of the forest. Harry, who had snatched up a rifle, leveled it instantly and took aim. But before his finger could pull the trigger, Colonel Talbot knocked it down again. "'My God!' he explained. "'I was barely in time to save him. It was Carrington himself. But he's our enemy, our powerful enemy.' "'Our enemy. Our official enemy, yes. But my friend.' my lifelong friend. We were boys together at West Point. We slept under the same blanket on the icy plateau of Mexico. No, Harry, I could not let you or any other slay him. The figure disappeared from the hillock, and the next moment the great guns opened again from the forest. The orders of Colonel Talbot had not been given a moment too soon. Huge shells and balls raked the fort once more, and the defenders crouched lower than ever in the trenches. Harry surmised that the new cannonade was intended mainly to prevent a possible return attack by the southern troops, but they were too cautious to venture from their earthworks. The Invincibles had grown many years older in a few hours. When it became evident that no sally would be made from the fort, the fire of the cannon in front ceased, and the smoke lifted, disclosing a field black with the slain. Harry looked shuddered and refused to look again. But Colonel Talbot examined field and forest long and anxiously through his glasses. They are there yet, and they will remain, he announced at last. We have beaten back the assault. They may hold us here until a great army comes, and with heavy loss to them, but we are yet besieged. Carrington will not let us rest. He will send a shell to some part of this fort every three or four minutes. You'll see. They heard a roar and hiss a minute later, and a shell burst inside the walls. Through all the afternoon Carrington played upon the shaken nerves of the Invincibles. It seemed that he could make his shells hit wherever he wished. If a recruit left a trench, it was only to make a rush for another. If their nerves settled down for a moment, that solemn boom from the forest and the shriek of the shell made them jump again. Wonderful, wonderful, murmured Colonel Talbot but terribly trying to new men. Carrington certainly grows better with the years. Harry tried to compose himself and rest as he lay in the trench with St. Clair and Langdon. They had had their battle face to face, and all three of them were terribly shaken. But they recovered themselves at last, despite the shells which burst at short but irregular intervals inside the fort. Thus the last hours of the afternoon waned, and as the twilight came they went more freely about the fort. Colonel Talbot called a conference of the senior officers in a corner of the enclosure well under the shelter of the earthen walls, and after some minutes of anxious talking they sent for the three youths. Harry, St. Clair, and Langdon responded with alacrity 
sure that something of the utmost importance was afoot. End of chapter 12, part 2 of 2. Recording by Al Roca.